Hey, how's it going? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 67 of the Essential X Labs, where um, I guess I can start by apologizing for missing the past few days here. Um, I was hoping to have this out a while ago. Well, not a while ago, but a few days ago, anyway. Uh, thing of it is, um, I'm like transitioning to a new laptop. Um, I got this laptop last summer, but since everything kind of fell apart creatively during last summer, I you know, seldom had the opportunity to use it. I just use my ancient um, laptop where the every time I turn it on, it tells me that the hard drive is failing and I've got like 3% of life left. And for some weird reason, it's sticking around at 3% of, a, I guess, lifetime feasibility of a, the hard drive, you know, being a thing longer than it did any other percentage. So I was in a huge rush to replace it because I thought it was dying, and uh, well, here we sit six, seven months later, and it's still holding strong. So I've been using that one, not using the new one so much. Uh, the new one, it's, it's a really, really nice rig, but uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I had it put aside for a certain reason, and if I wasn't if I wasn't using it for that reason, it didn't feel right to use it at all. So it kind of just sat. And uh, here, working on scripts again, trying to do a little bit more creative work, I uh, decided to you know, utilize it a little bit more here, try to break it in. Speaking of which, I just realized that I haven't been speaking through my microphone for the past minute and a half here. Uh, I, fe I felt like a weird like tinniness in the air, and um, yeah, sure enough, I'm recording through the laptop speaker, and or the laptop mic, and listening through the laptop speaker, so I decided to change that. But as I was saying... Trying to break this thing in here, and so, you know, take it off power and, uh, you know, just run it on battery like you do with a laptop. And I was watching, like, almost in real time. I guess it would be real time, but, uh, like, I could actually see it happening here. Um, as I'm typing in a script, I'm watching the little battery icon on the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, like, lose, you know, lose the blackness, you know? It was like, uh, eating away at the battery, where... Like, I was working for about a half hour, and I checked my battery levels, and I was down to 40% from 100. So I was literally using up, like, 2% of battery every single minute. And um, it's a Surface laptop, Microsoft Surface laptop, and I guess these are notorious for having really, really poor battery lives. Even though, if, like, you look on a Microsoft site, it says, you know, you can get 18 to 36 hours on one charge... I barely got 18 to 36 minutes, um, which, I don't know, that just seems like, uh, uh, you know, not, not terribly advantageous uh, for a laptop, and also uh, kind of crappy if you want to, you know, use a laptop in any way that you would generally use a laptop. So, I hopped on the, uh, the Microsoft chat, the tech chat, and, uh, of course, the wizard's there tell you that, uh, they basically tell you it's your fault, <laughs> and, uh, you must have downloaded something that is causing this corruption, and, uh, do a fresh install, and, well, you know, I'm not gonna argue with an expert, so I went ahead and, uh, did that, I refreshed this thing down to, whatever, what do they, what do you call that, like a, uh, factory reset, I did that, and I chose to do it where you, like, delete everything, which sucks, even though there wasn't too much on here, still sucks, because then you got to, like, figure out what passwords were, and, like, what browser you were using, and log into that, and 
I mean, we all check our email every day, but it's like, if you had to, could you sign in every day? Like, could you remember? You? I, I have no idea what my passwords are. So just a disaster. So I knew that by hitting reset, not only was I going to be down for like a day so it could do the reset, but then I was going to have to figure out like what, where I needed to be signed in, how I could sign in and all that kind of stuff and which, which programs I had and which program might be the one that's hogging up all the memory, even though the only one that I was using when the battery was being eaten was a uh, Microsoft edge, which you might figure would be optimized to be used on a Microsoft machine, but, um, who knows? Anyway, here we are. Um, we are refreshed. I don't know how the battery life is looking now because they told me once you refresh it to leave it plugged in for an entire day. So I did, and um, I'm I'm honestly too scared to unplug it now. It's because it's, you know, not that I'm worried that it's broken. I'm just worried that I'm going to get so angry when I see this thing drop 10% in three minutes that I'm just going to chuck it through a wall. And I, you know, I, I can't really justify doing that. But uh, here we are. We are back. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe today we are wrapping up our little uh, Lorna Dane story here. Three-parter in order to introduce us to this brand new mutant, the queen of the mutants, uh, apparently, allegedly, sometimes, sometimes not. But uh, how about we get into it here? Let's hop right into X-Men number 52. January 1969 cover date. So we're finally out of 1968. Feels like we were there forever. The story's called Twilight of the Mutants, written by Arnold Drake. Pencils, Don Heck and Warner Roth. Inks, John Tataglioni. Letters, Sam Rosen. Edit, Stan Lee. Cover price, 12 cents. Now, this is one that I actually own. I don't own, you know, a terrible amount of uh, pre-giant size uh, X-Men. I don't have too many of those in my collection here. Probably maybe a dozen, you know, from the first hundred issues. Uh, it's just... It's weird, like, the ones that I usually see in the wild are the reprints, you know, 67 to 93, and I always kind of view those as being inessential, since, you know, they are just reprints. They do have backups that are also reprints, not even from X-Men comics, just from random, like, uh, 1950s monster things, monster stories, I believe, but um, never really saw them as essential, especially at the prices that I usually see them at, like usually see them between 10 and 20 dollars a piece and 10 to 20 bucks for a reprint it just doesn't i can't justify that um now this issue i actually grabbed a reader copy for two dollars um there's a comic shop about an hour away from my house uh, called greg's and um really really cool place it's like the last of the old school comic shops they've got the 50 cent bins they've it's not just, you know, walls and walls of Funko Pops. It's uh, not walls and walls of, uh, you know, movie-branded T-shirts. It's just comic books, which, believe it or not, is, is, is a nice place to go to. You know, just looking at comics here. Comics from the gold and silver, bronze, current, anything you might want, you, you're probably going to find it there. And uh, they do have a spinner rack toward the back of the shop with reader copies from collections they'd bought or just uh, boxes that they've gone through. And they'll throw them up at $2 a pop. And damned if I don't, uh, you know, spin that thing around and grab a handful every time I go in there. Because there's always just something, like, super cool in there. Um, I, I found a few Omega the Unknowns on there. Um, some uh, Silver Age Captain Marvels on there. Just 
so many really fun things, including some X-Men comics, including this one. I also got uh, a couple of the reprints in there for two bucks. I think I got um, Giant Size X-Men number two uh, there uh, for two bucks. It's just such a such a fun little thing to uh, to encounter. Truly taking myself back to you know my earliest days in the comics fandom, where you know the first time you ever run into like a, a cheapo bin is just. I don't know, I, I, maybe I over-romanticize it, but um, it's just one of those things that I, I'm never going to forget. You know, it's always going to be a, a warm memory for me because, you know, growing up when I did, the Speculator era, where, like, the books that came out yesterday are now worth $15, $20, to come across something like a, a 50 cent or a quarter bin just seemed unreal. Like like you were living a dream for uh, for the young, poor comic fan. Who wanted nothing more than to stretch their lunch money just as far as it could go. But uh, yeah, really, really fun to, to be covering this one. Uh, especially since it's one that I do have a, uh, a fond memory of uh, purchasing. Now let's get into it here. We got the cover. And it's Eric the Red blasting the X-Men and Magneto. And, uh, you know, I'm sure our, our seasoned X-Fans already know the secret of Eric the Red. But if you're not... Completely familiar with the story, you don't know how stupid <laughs> the uh, secret of Eric the Red is, and the whole, just the whole persona of Eric the Red. It's so dumb, it, it, and it's pointless on top of being dumb. We'll get there. We'll get there. So, let's crack this sucker open here. Inside, Eric is being tackled by some demimen. This is Eric the Red, not Eric Magnus Lensher or Max, whatever the hell we're calling him here. This is Eric the Red. He's being tackled by some demimen as he makes his way toward the mutant city. Mesmero exclaims that this pretender must be destroyed. Only that's a well, far easier said than done. Eric the Red uses his optic finger blasts to KO and crack the demis for like three entire pages. A lot of uh, a lot of fingers happen here. He then blasts through a wall, which luckily just fills the area with smoke, so he can make his way into the citadel or where wherever. I mean, he's blasting everything. It's causing. All sorts of debris, I guess, just to kick it up and offer him a uh, sort of a smoke screen. Now, inside the Citadel or wherever, he runs into a confused and conflicted Lorna Dane, as if there's any other kind of Lorna Dane. Now, she sees him as a threat to her father, and so she reluctantly prepares to attack him. It's here where Eric informs the Dane Dame that uh, well, he's not here to fight. He's not actually here to take down Magneto. He is, in fact, here to join him. Upon hearing this, Magneto's adorable little miscolored head literally pops into the corner of the very next panel to accept this supervillain team-up request. The thing of it is, Mags is currently injured, hobbled, and in his words, rendered a temporary invalid. And so, his new partner in crime, Eric the Red, is now calling all the shots in the Mutant City. He is not only a partner, but he is in charge. So that didn't take long. Um, Lorna wonders if Mesmero will grow to accept Eric's word being law. But our new pal, Eric the Red, well, he's not too worried. And he even calls uh, Lorna a beauteous lady. He's like, no, don't have any worries, my beauteous lady. Which only reminds me that beauteous is such a dumb word. Um, now, back at the bachelor pad, Jean's gotten a mental word from Scott that it's, quote, Twilight time. So I guess Twilight of the Mutants is actually the code name of their plan? 
Anyway, she passes this on to Hank and Warren, and before we know it, they're back in the mutant city. Bobby's not there, because if you recall, he stomped his foot and ran out of the place last issue. Back inside, Eric the Red is meeting with Mesmero to give him the new lay of the land. The Mez ain't cool with it, but doesn't have much of a choice but to follow along. He does, however, vow that uh, as soon as Magneto's back up and about, he, Mesmero, will engage in the deadliest combat with Eric the Red. Eric then turns to Lorna and claims that, unlike Mez and Mags, he doesn't sense any, quote, evil reverberation, easy for me to say, evil reverberations coming from her, so he can sense evil reverberations. I didn't know that was one of Psych, I mean, Eric the Red's powers. Anyway, Lorna returns to her father's side and uh, gets lost in her own thoughts. Now, she worries that, like, she's got, like, this weird sort of crisis of, uh, personality here. She's like, is this my life now? (laughs) Is this all I have left? Am I destined to live a loveless life and be stood beside a madman whose blood just happens to run through my veins? And I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty tragic, let's be honest. Elsewhere in the mutant city, perhaps the Citadel, uh, the X-Men have arrived, and they run right into Eric the Red. Jean approaches the new baddie, and they embrace what? Okay, okay. Well, this isn't much of a shock to we seasoned X fans, of course. Eric the Red is actually Cyclops. We know this. If you if you've been an X Men fan for any amount of time, you probably were already aware of that. Now, Cyclops somehow fashioned this ridiculous costume, the Shi'ar costume, and also somehow found a way to use it in order to redirect his optic blasts to go through his costume and beam out his fingers? Um, like, um, okay. Um, it's very dumb. And by 1969, feels at least five years out of date. I mean, maybe you could get away with this, like, in 1962, 1963, but now it's kind of like, come on now. And I mean... Let's take Eric the Red out of the equation here altogether, okay? The X-Men were able to get back into the mutant city undetected, right? I mean, that's been established. They're here. Cyclops didn't help get them in. They're here. If that's the case, why in all the hells did Cyclops even need to become Eric the Red? They're already here, and it's going to lead to a fight. So, why? All right, let's just move on. It's here and now where the Twilight Time plan comes together, and honestly, again, it has nothing to do with Cyclops prancing around in dollar store Shi'ar armor. Nothing to do with it. It's all predicated on Angel rolling out some copper tape along the floor, with which they can shock the demi And I don't want to belabor the point here, but why do we need Eric the Red then? Anyway... With the zappy copper tape all laid out, wouldn't you know it, Bobby Drake suddenly, urgently blasts into the room and gets shocked. The heroes are able to turn down the ampage before it kills Iceman, which causes some sort of electrical feedback, causing the mutant city's power supply to blow. This naturally alerts Mesmero and the boys, and just like that, it's fighting time. Now, stop me if you heard this one before, but, uh... The fight is the exact same fight that the X-Men always seem to have during this era. 
Angel is swarmed by baddies as he tries to fly away. Beast hits a bad guy with a drop kick. Jean awkwardly holds her hands over her head while Teak hanging in the baddies' direction. I mean, for real, this is the same fight scene we've read dozens of times at this point. Let's rejoin Cyclops, who announces that he is, in fact, Eric the Red, and then he fires his fingy blasts at some demis. He takes a, a gaggle of them out, which kind of begs the question, why, why did he wait so long to do it? I mean, we had a whole fight scene before he did it. I don't know. Uh, Gene and the Mez are facing off. They hurl globs of telewatsits at one another for a bit. We hop over to Magneto's, uh, I don't know, throne room in the Citadel. He sends his only daughter, well, for now, and I guess for later as well, off to fight the X-Men. Now, as she leaves, she runs into Bobby, who tells her that he's got big news. You see, he went back to her hometown and chatted up every single person there. Okay, just her folks and the newspaper people. Anyway, he was able to find out that Magneto is not Lorna's father. Um, You see, the couple who raised her, they're not her birth parents, and she knows that. They're, in fact, her uncle and aunt. Lorna's actual folks, well, it wasn't Magneto and some broad. It was a, a couple who died in a plane crash just a few weeks after she was born. Now, Bobby claims that he's got all the affidavits to back up these facts. More importantly... Despite the fact that he's only known this woman for all of eight minutes now, he claims that's all the time he needed to tell that she doesn't have an ounce of bad blood in her. Sure, dude. Um, This is (laughs) all it takes for Lorna to do a complete 180. She turns her aggression toward the man she believed to be her father until literally three and a half seconds ago. Um, She unleashes a wave of her nebulous energy. I'm... Not sure it's been clarified exactly what her powers are just yet, if they are magnetic in nature or just energy. In any event, it takes every single baddie out. So as the X-Men plus Lorna go to leave, they receive a taped message from Magneto. It's like every Magneto post-fight recording. It's, you know, blah, 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 I'm going to kill you all, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. He sets the mutant city to self-destruct, but... One single panel later, our heroes are clear of the blast radius. Maybe Nightcrawler popped in. I I don't know. Somebody teleported them out. Now we close out our feature presentation back at, uh, maybe it's the bachelor pad? It might be the mansion? I, I don't know. If it is the bachelor pad, Bobby and Hank have themselves some very fancy window treatments that, uh, I, I, I don't see, you know, teenagers having. Anyway, this is the end of our story, and it ends kind of in a like, wacky sitcom end credits kind of way, where Lorna promises to give Bobby some muscular therapy. And, well, uh, by now, we all know how that's going to go. Uneventful, at best. Anyway, this is where we leave it, and this is the last we'll see of Lorna for... six issues? I don't think she comes back until the late 50s. Uh, I could be mistaken, but I think she's going to go back in the toy chest for a little bit here. But um, let's hop into our backup story here, the the wildly eventful (laughs) origin of the X-Men missive here. Uh, This is The Crimes of the Conquistador, written by Arnold Drake, pencils Werner Roth, inks John Verporten, letters Sam Rosen, edits Stan Lee. To which, it's like, yeah, this is still going on, isn't it? All right. We pick up with Hank being forced to assist El Conquistador in stealing a nuke. Otherwise, his parents are going to get it. 
Xavier and the boys spend an entire page talking about how Hank wasn't home last issue. And now Cerebro's having trouble finding him again, uh, until like two panels later when it finds him again. And so the X-Men are sent out. They wind up at a nearby government lab where a nuclear reactor has uh, just been left out on a round table. I mean, it's it's... It's called a nuke here. It's going to be called something different next chapter. But um, in any event, whatever the hell it is, it, it's uh, just left out on a table. There's no, like, laser beams around it or nothing. It's just there, out in the open. I don't know. Anyway, Hank sneaks in and swipes it. The guards spot him, but uh, he's able to maneuver his way out of Dodge. He returns to El Conquistador's casa and delivers the goods. El Con then backhands our boy, telling him that he's, uh, well, he's outlived his, uh, his usefulness. And, well, that's that's it. Um, unfortunately, I think we are going to get another part of that. Actually, I know for sure we're going to get at least <laughs> at least one more chapter of Beast and El Conquistador. So, overall, uh, you know, taking the wildly lackluster backup story out of the equation, this was a interesting issue, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm still baffled uh, by the need for an Eric the Red persona. Unless there's something obvious that I'm missing, I really haven't the foggiest idea why they needed him uh, to be part of this story. Uh, maybe they had a different plan for him. To, uh, you know, I mean, we talk about, like, editorial mandates nowadays and how things kind of change on a dime, but I, I I feel like there were far less cooks in the kitchen back in 1968, 1969, where there really shouldn't be too many balls up in the air, you know, that you, you might miss... Uh, might miss it on the juggle, but it's just weird. Maybe it was just a, like a cool idea. Maybe it was just a cool costume. Um, I mean, it's not really a cool costume, but maybe they thought it was. I don't know. And we do know, of course, that uh, when Jim Steranko drew Eric the Red on the cover of issue, I think it was actually last issue, 51, that he drew a very different Eric the Red. Like an actual Viking character with a you know big beard and a horned helmet and stuff like that. Maybe something changed. I don't know. I really don't. And of course we know that Eric the Red will wind up being an actual Shi'ar guy <laughs> eventually. And Magneto will also take the Eric the Red costume at some point uh, during the Trial of Gambit. I don't know. I feel like uh, there was a point in my life where I was able to tell you all about Eric the Red. Unfortunately, that time is long past. <laughs> so uh, we'll just uh, we'll learn as we go, I suppose. But um, not a whole heck of a lot more to say about the issue. It uh, wrapped up the story just fine. Um, a little sitcom-y at the end, which is also fine. Um, the next few issues are going to be uh, a little different. A little different, especially next issue. Which is not only going to be a little different, it's also going to be kind of bad. <laughs> not a good issue. Uh, feels like it. Uh, the book might have taken a couple of steps backward with the issue we're going to cover next time out. But we'll worry about that then. We'll do our best to have as much fun with it as possible. But um, for now, let's hop into the back end of this episode and into our mutant mailbox. And again, Stan ain't replying to these letters, I think... I think he goes back to responding next episode, next issue. I, I, it's either next issue or the one after that. In either event, it's going to be a welcome return. Uh, let's kick things off with Glenn in California. Now, Glenn is writing re in response to Tom's letter back in X-Men number 49. 
So I guess this is uh, Stan's laziness and not responding to letters paying off because this is what he wanted. He wanted the letter hacks to respond to one another. And here we go. So how about we flip all the way back to issue number 49 and find out what Tom's beef was, which uh, is to say, let me try to find the script to episode 64. And well, okay, here it is. Now, Tom, back in X-Men 49, episode 64, said he's not so sure he'll be keeping up with the X-Men after the death of Professor X. He said that seeing his tombstone was uh, his Rubicon here. He thought he might come back until he saw that tombstone, at which time he realized we will never, ever see the Professor again. Uh, Tom also hates the new cover design. He, bl- he compares it to a brand Ech book. He's not a huge fan of Gary Friedrich, says he's better suited on the war mags. Uh, He complains again about the cover copy. He raises a concept that a mutant born with, uh, with, I'm sorry, a child born with birth defects should be considered a mutant. And as such, they would find representation in the X-Men book, which is why he wants the X-Men to reband as a team. Of course, he wrote this during their very, very brief broken up top period of two issues. And uh, he wants them back together to represent mutants of all variety. Now, Glenn, this is our current letter hack here, he suggests that Tom is a spy trying to circulate false propaganda in order to keep Marvel from taking over the world. I hope this was written tongue-in-cheek, but you can't tell with these with these letters. Um, uh, I suppose... While we're here, we should let Glenn try to back up his claim. Um, Now, he does so... He has a three-point argument here. A. Tom used the term brand ech, which Stan asked the fans not to use anymore because it's a childish name-calling sort of a thing. Despite, you know, the fact that Stan publishes a really awful humor book called Not Brand Ech. Um, B. Point B. Tom spelled Cyclops wrong twice. He's a spy because he can't spell Cyclops. Or maybe the person who typed the letter in misspelled it twice. Maybe this was a Fabulous Flo's parting shot at Marvel, misspelling Cyclops to, to raise suspicion that there's a spy in their midst, in the fandom. Oh, boy. Uh, point C, point the third here. Tom opined that the demise of the X-Men title was near, which, uh, I mean... Uh, I know it's unfair because I'm sitting here in 2023, but, uh, well, we kind of have that uncanny ability to pull the hindsight card here, don't we? The X-Men are not long for this world, so, um, Tom was right. And that's Glenn's entire letter here, uh, which, wow, um, I I suppose when we finally reach X-Men number 66, we can look back at Tom's letter and know who's to blame. The The spy from Brand Ech coming into, uh, Get the X-Men to be cancelled? I don't know. Let's move on. Barry in Portland loved the cover to X-Men 49. He loved the original X-Men logo being back. And he likes that the Comics Code Authority stamp is getting smaller and smaller on the cover here. He calls it, like, art pollution or something, which is both uh, kind of forward-thinking and also a little precious, which uh, kind of gets on my nerves a little bit. I can only hope that... Uh, Barry is more familiar with all the stuff that had to do with the Comics Code Authority than current year fans are. 
because it's like every so often you'll be on a social media site and someone will post the the CCA stamp and be like, this is the most censorious and uh, fascistic. It's like, then they'll evoke the name of Wortham who had nothing to do with the CCA and no one will argue the fact. And if you try to, you're looked at as, as an asshole. So I've long stopped <laughs> trying to educate people on the Comics Code Authority. Not that, uh, not that I'm any sort of expert, but uh, I have done hundreds of hours of research and actually read Seduction of the Innocent, unlike so many people online. Anyway, let's move on. Sheldon in Calgary, he loves that the X-Men are back together again. He's really, really pleased to see the old logo back, and he's a huge fan of Starenko's art. Though, while Starenko ain't perfect, he calls out Jim for uh, having Beast wear gloves on the cover of the issue, which, wow, I, I thought I was anal about, uh, you know, character bibles and, and continuity and looks, but um, I guess he got me beat. Uh, I'm just happy we're not talking about Bobby's booties anymore, so... Anyway, Sheldon continues, he likes the idea of Magneto tutoring a new mutant menace in Mesmero, and he'd really like Lorna to stick around because... Not because, like, she's a character with a whole lot of um, promise. No, no, he wants her to stick around because she's hotter than Jean Grey. Next up, Bill in Goose Creek, and this is a response to another letter hack, and, uh... You know, this uh, this shift is going to add a lot of time to my script writing If this sticks around <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't Now, uh, Vic, the original letter hack Thankfully didn't send in a letter of substance He was a goofball who was trying to coin new Marvel acronyms Painfully Painfully Now, I, I guess amid his attempts at humor His failed attempts at humor He mentioned that Angel's wings blended into the background of a panel Bill here says that Angel was just moving too fast or something, which is... Uh, that's fine. Sure, sure. Bill continues, he did not care for the cover art on issue 49. He says that the Beast didn't have enough toes, which I'd have to pull the uh, pull the issue out to see. Um, Angel had too many bands around his waist, and Gene's fingers and feet were too pointed. Okay. Iceman and Cyclops, uh, in Bill's words here, look like something out of not-brand ugh. So, um, it's weird. It's such a polarizing cover, and, I mean, to think, I probably spent a second and a half looking at it. It just, to me, it's just like, oh, it's just another cover. It didn't really stand out. It's one that, uh, to be honest, doesn't inspire you to read the issue. It's actually one that I was dreading because of how much I just... Thought the cover was blah. Anyway, next up, Jim in Ontario. He says he always saw the potential of the X-Men book, but up until very recently, it never reached it. He hated when the X-Men faced off with the Mimic and Count Nefarious Magia. Magia? However you say that. He hated the drab old costumes. Uh, uh, okay, I'm not going to waste your time or my own. Jim drags out his missive, listing everything that he hated, which was pretty much everything in the X-Men book until Jim Storenko showed up. I swear I'm starting to have like this weird recoil reaction here, like uh, like Gary Groth from the, the Comics Journal when uh, he kind of flipped his stuff over uh, all the fawning praise for Frank Miller when he came on Daredevil. Like uh, Gary Groth was like the one voice <laughs> in opposition to the uh, Frank Miller love here. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm becoming that with Storenko here. I've got this knee-jerk like... I just don't get it, especially not on not on the X-Men book. I don't think that was anything special. 
uh, Jim in Ontario disagrees and, you know, loves everything about Starenko except for the fact that the Beast was wearing yellow gloves on the cover. Okay. Uh, now, Jim also wonders why Angel never got his origin backup story, to which I must warn, don't say that two more times because we just might get it. Next up, Brian in California. Now, he claims that he'd already written a letter about the X-Men, which I could not find. So I'm assuming he wrote it and it never got printed? I do have a ridiculous master list and an Excel spreadsheet of all 388 letters we've covered so far. And could not find another from Brian. I tried spelling it several different ways. I looked up his hometown to see if I had anybody in there. And uh, no, I couldn't find anything from Brian. Anyway, Brian says in his last missive, he congratulated Stan on destroying the X-Men. Now, well, he's writing to congratulate him on rebuilding them. Well, almost. He still hates the lousy new costumes, and he's not too keen on Mesmero and the Demi-Men either, so... What is it he likes about the book? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, He suggests that Jim Steranko is... the best X-Men artist ever. I mean, I hate when people start a question with, is it just me, or am I the only one? But, uh, I don't know, I just don't see it. Uh, He basically gushes in Steranko's direction for the next hundred or so words of his letter, and again, he's fine, but I I don't really see anything spectacular. Especially if we're talking about his X-Men work. Just don't see it. Let's wrap things up here with Doug in (laughs) Accident, Maryland. I didn't know there was a town called Accident anywhere. Um, but yeah, Accident, Maryland. He likes Steranko, but would rather have Don Heck or Warner Roth doing the covers. How about that? He says that the penciling team of Heck and Roth made their work look a bit Steranko-ish of late, which I don't think I noticed. Uh, maybe they did. I don't know. I didn't notice it. He wraps up with the very forward-thinking and progressive point of view that, uh, boy, it's weird that Marvel Girl's the most powerful X-Man. Okay, not very enlightened, but what are you going to do? That's our letters page. Let's hop into the bullpen bulletins here. Uh, The bullpen bulletins this month is also known as Sensational Scoops to Startle, Stun, and Soothe You. Item, Stan Lee and Jim Steranko on Captain America, which tells me we're going to suddenly be talking a lot more about Captain America in the bullpen (laughs) bulletins. It's going to be Silver Surfer uh, all over again. Uh, we also get news here that Jack Kirby is moving on from Captain America to a new blockbuster title written by Stan himself. Off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure which title that's going to wind up being. I'm sure we'll find out sooner rather than later. Item! Jim Mooney and John Romita's Amazing Spider-Man is getting rave reviews. That's it. Item! Herb Trimpey is getting a new strip very soon, featuring a certain Latverian monarch. Um, um, could that be Supervillain Team-Up? Did that happen already? I don't remember that starting, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it did start then. I don't know. Item! Um, Stan fills us in on a recent bullpen beauty report here. Uh, Stan shaved his beard, Saul Brodsky grew sideburns, and Gary Friedrich dyed his hair yellow. Not blonde. Yellow. Um, (laughs) I guess knowing is half the battle. Item. Stan asked the readers if they know how many members of the Avengers have appeared in the mag since it launched. Which I gotta assume is a response to the people who are complaining about how how often the Avengers roster kind of changes form. Which, I mean, going back to 1968, 1969, and thinking it's confusing then? 
Could you imagine any of those fans today? I'm trying to think of... I don't think I could think of three or four Marvel characters who haven't been Avengers at some point. I mean, I could be mistaken, but the only one that comes to mind for me is the Silver Surfer. I think literally every other Marvel character, good and bad, <laughs> has been on the team at some point. I think friggin' Sabretooth and Craven the Hunter have been Avengers at this point. Ridiculous. So, um, yeah, if you if you know how many of the Avengers have appeared in the mag since it launched uh, circa January 1969 cover date, uh, maybe you'll get a no prize, I don't know. Our final item has to do with Flo Steinberg. She got herself a new job at Rockefeller Center. Stan offers his congrats and says he hopes that she enjoys that extra $5 a week. Um, Flo's new gig, in case anybody's interested, uh, she was editing pamphlets and technical manuals for the American Petroleum Institute. She would stick around here for almost three years, only leaving when the company upped stakes and moved base to Washington, D.C. Next up, we got Stan's Soapbox, and Stan... Here he talks about his new lazy approach to answering fan mail, which, as we've come to find, is uh, him not answering it at all. Stan decides to share a letter about that here on the soapbox. It's from Mike in Missouri. I wonder if Mike's last name is Thomas. Um, Now, he says, quote, Here's an amazing coincidence. You aren't answering your letters, and I'm not buying your comics. Unquote. Uh, Stan says that this letter knocked him for a loop. And while he maintains that he just doesn't have the time to answer all the letters, he's prepared to make a compromise. You see, starting next month, he will only answer those letters that really need answering. Which I, I suppose is a better than nothing. It's fair enough. Um, so we will uh, we'll see how, uh, how much skin he puts in the game starting next issue. Now let's hop into the mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Silver Server number four, where he's facing off against Thor. Not Brand Ech, number 12, features Frankenstein 69, which is probably a mag you do not want left out on the table when a company comes over. Fantastic Four, number 83, it's the good boring Inhumans versus the bad boring Inhumans, and uh, I guess uh, the ultimate losers there will be anybody who buys Fantastic Four, number 83. Spider-Man, number 69, versus the Kingpin while a campus riot continues to rage. Avengers number 60, The Wedding of the Wasp and Yellow Jacket, which does feature an X-Men appearance. They literally appear in the corner of a single panel, and so we're not going to dedicate an entire episode to that. Uh, We can just uh, pretend I did just now. Daredevil number 48 versus Stiltman. Thor number 160, The Return of Galactus, Ego the Living Planet, and The Recorder. Captain America 110, which, by the way, is a Stan Lee-Jim Steranko joint. Uh, this features a new partner for Captain America, and this is Rick Jones taking on the uh, the Bucky persona. Hulk number 112 versus the Galaxy Master. Iron Man number 10, the Mandarin, susses out Iron Man's secret identity. Submariner number 10 uh, is called Never Bother a Barracuda, which is pretty good advice. Captain Marvel number 10 is features uh, Marvel sentenced to death, I think. Think he'll get you know he'll get over it. Shield number nine versus the Hate Monger. Doctor Strange one seventeen features Doc Strange versus himself. Hmm. Sergeant Fury sixty two is Nick Fury in basic training. Captain Savage number ten versus Japanese invaders, which always seems to be the case. Collector's Items Classics number nineteen is reprints. Rawhide Kid number sixty eight is versus the Kuga. 
Mighty Marvel Western number three are reprints, unsurprisingly, all written by Stan Lee. And Millie the Model number 167 is, quote, for the females, unquote. A book still on sale, Spectacular Spidey number two. Please buy the damn thing so we can stop talking about it. Also, the 18th issues of both Marvel Superheroes and Marvel Tales. And that, my friends, is where we will leave it. I don't have much of an outro, as if I ever have much of an outro. I usually just ramble on like I'm doing right now. I don't have anything constructive to say at the end of an episode. It's just one of those things where my mouth keeps moving and I don't know when to stop it. And it's awkward and inorganic and unnatural. And, um, well, I should probably just stop. So I will. But first, I want to thank you all so much for joining me today, for allowing me to occupy your ear space for three quarters of an hour. It really, really does mean the world to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.